0: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the
1: podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Archaeo Animals. I'm Alex Fitzpatrick and with me as always, Simona Palanga. And today we're actually going to do something that's a bit outside what we normally talk about or to be honest, what we are kind of experts in. (laughs) We're going to talk about megafauna, and that's kind of a a weird
3: place, isn't it, for zooarchaeologists? It is, but also, like, uh, I'd like to mention as well that it's a a, a whole, like, new experience, because this is also our first listener request episode.
0: Yes, so thank you for that request. Obviously, if you have any others, you know where to contact us on Twitter, or whatever. Wait till the end of the episode, we'll do that. But yeah, if you request an episode, we will probably fast track it so that we can record it right away and it'll come out somewhat
3: promptly. <laughs> so if you would like to request an episode where Tristan this quiet throughout the entire episode, please do.
0: Yes, a couple episodes, that could be a series, ten episodes, hundred episodes. You know, if the demand is there, we obviously have to do it. The people would will be speaking. And Tristan will not. Yep.
3: <laughs> but yeah, no, it is a bit of a of an odd one because of course in terms of megafauna we'll be focusing mainly on the on the Pleistocene. Yeah. And well, you may think, well, isn't that sort of paleontology over zoo archaeology? And it is indeed a bit of a tricky one because well as you may know, like, we really only talk of zoo archaeology if humans are involved in one way or another. Of course, archaeology being the study of mankind and their interactions with the environment, animals and, you know, all that. That's the professional correct definition. While of course, if uh, humans aren't involved, then that uh, predates humans. Uh, that's where paleontology sort of steps in. Mm hmm. Though, to be fair, like, in this particular case, I mean, like, you, you can speak of zooarchaeology because you can cover sort of that period between the Pleistocene and anatomically modern humans overlap, which is the Paleolithic.
0: So the Paleolithic is basically the first period of human prehistory. So from 3.3 million years ago to 11,650 BP, uh, which is also considered the end of the Pleistocene so like personally for me a lot of my research ends up just pushing up at the Paleolithic not exactly in that period but close enough so a lot of the stuff when we were researching was stuff that I was somewhat familiar with but ultimately I don't really cover it per se and uh, Simona as our resident expert Roman person thing
3: just definitely not cover the Paleolithic <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was going to say, it's not necessarily something you experience all the time, do you?
3: I think it's something that is generally not experienced all the time, unless you look at it from an academic point of view. And then again, uh, we don't exactly have a wealth of Paleolithic sites, at least in Britain. I mean, comparatively speaking with sites from other time periods, because, Mm. of course, you know, it mainly be sort of hunter-gatherer societies that would... Likely move around a lot. You, yeah. you wouldn't leave a lot in terms of actual, you know, archaeological features. There'll be scatters of animal remains, flint scatters, which were not necessarily being readily visible, sort of in the soil. So, sort of, like when yeah. you go down in the stratigraphy, so it's just something that primarily well, it's not as easy to identify, and there's probably not as many of them anywhere anyway, because well, at that time there was a lot less of us as well. <laughs> A lot less. A lot less. (laughs) So, of course, as you may have guessed, it is in the Paleolithic that man-made artifacts start to become prevalent. I mean, they're not entirely new. We do see some sort of tool usage dating way before then, but they become Mm. more prevalent. Yeah. And that's when also conventionally Homo sapiens starts forming small hunter-gatherer societies. And then again, that's as we currently understand Because then we could go into a whole other conversation (laughs) of what constitutes a society. But no. Not now. Maybe Uh, later. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe if someone puts in a request. (laughs) But yeah, anything prior to that will be classed as paleontology. So say you've got a site that does date back to the Paleolithic. So like therefore, like anatomically modern humans were about, but there's actually no trace of them on your particular site. You've merely got fauna remains that have nothing to do with human activity. So say you've got a site and there's some boar and there's some deer and there's scavenging marks from hyenas. And that Mm. is your site. So would that be zooarchaeology or paleontology? Because you're just looking at the animals.
4: That would be the start of a fight, would it not? You know, the paleontologists, the archaeologists line up. Right. Let's see how much human activity is here. I'll give you some human activity to deal with. Huh? I take it nobody's ever fought a paleontologist here, have they?
0: I mean I can.
4: Yeah, no, totally. Me too, me too. Like
0: Is that like a dare?
4: I I, I think it's more like a just, you know, experience, you know. I, I definitely could. Yeah. I, I could take on paleontologists or two. Like, I don't know, would you rather take on like one like I don't know, archaeoastronomer or like ten paleontologists? <laughs> It's like, you know, one of those questions, like 10 ducks or 10 duck-sized dinosaurs.
0: I mean, if I have a big enough bat,
3: I could probably take them all out in one go.
4: That is true. That is true. Someone you ever fought a paleontologist?
3: No. Why can't we all just get along? No. <laughs> Never.
4: It's a side fight.
0: You know? Yeah. I choose violence every day. I don't, really. I'm, I'm a very sweet girl. <laughs> have you eaten no okay you can tell uh (laughs) but no it's an interesting question and like I'm very interested in kind of non-anthropocentric zooarchaeologies but again there's the difference in that I work in much later periods so there isn't necessarily that issue of is that paleontology if you're only focusing on the animals you know but it is i've always like i've been asked that before you know because obviously i mean simona you've probably gotten this before i think all archaeologists end up getting that question which is oh do you dig up dinosaurs you know and uh, of course you're like oh well you know that's more like paleontology and then of course Eventually, you get the question of, "Oh, well, if you do like prehistoric animals, isn't that paleontology?" And it becomes kind of like, uh, you know, it's a bit of a it depends." <laughs> yeah, it's a bit it's a bit di- weird and different. Like I've gotten questions about fossils before, and I've had to explain like, "Ah, uh, it's not really what I do. I get more of like the actual
3: bones." Yeah, like I guess sub fossil at best.
0: Yeah. But yeah, no, I think it's good that we're doing an episode that's a bit paleontology. And also shout out to our paleontologist comrades who do a lot of hard work on stuff
3: that I do not understand. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they just the like, I guess the, the the procedures are just completely different and the, the way of digging and just because I wouldn't be able to wrap my head around just, you know, you don't have anything clear on the ground of where the archaeology is. So you're like, oh, well, think. We'll there and I'm sure there's a rationale.
0: <laughs> yeah, and also like I feel like with identifications and stuff, at least with, you know, if I'm dealing with like say a chicken or or a horse, I know what a horse actually looks like. So in my brain, it helps a little bit more when it comes to identifications and kind of examining and interpreting remains. But when it comes to like megafauna, you know, I don't know.
3: It's a big thing. Yes, especially if you go deeper back sort of into paleontology, because also, you know, knowing a bit about animal remains, you have an idea of what bits are meant to be where on an animal. But then you go on species that have been extinct a million years ago and you find this bone, it's like, yeah, okay, that is a bone that goes somewhere.
0: Yeah, it's just it's Calvin Ball. It's just, you know, there are no rules when it comes to that stuff. But yeah, it might be uh, helpful to kind of talk about what the Pleistocene actually is (laughs) before we get a little bit more on track, maybe, with this episode.
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's what is known, I guess, as the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. But really, the Pleistocene is part of the Quaternary Epochs, which is made up of well, the Pleistocene and the Holocene, which is well, the time we live in now. Oh, the suggestions of an Anthropocene Epoch has also been put forward. So we may actually be living on yet another Epoch altogether. But back to the Pleistocene. So like, the Pleistocene itself can be divided into three ages. So you have the early, often known as the Villa Frankian, middle and late. Now think about the Pleistocene, or sort of like, well, the ice age is known, Of course, you wouldn't have been a perennial, just millions of years of just ice. Uh, it, was, it was more of an alternation between glaciations and interglacials. And these start to become really prominent towards sort of the end of the middle and the late Pleistocene. Because course, that's quite interesting to note, because also, a way to find out sort of like whether you're dealing with a period of glaciation or an interglacial is by identifying the species that you recover sort of on site. So, say, for example, like during a period of glaciation, you tend to find more species that are adapted to tundra and tiger environments, such as the mammoth and the woolly rhino. And then during the interglacial instead, you find species that are more suited to temperate climates. So you start getting your deer, your boar. And so you almost see sort of these different types of species, almost sort of like replacing each other. Mm-hmm. So like you see, like some species being more prevalent, and then you see the glacial ones coming about, and then they sort of slowly peter out again, and and so forth.
0: And I think that also kind of shows a dimension of paleontology that you know, for the most part, zooarchaeologists don't really deal with, which is you have these you know interglacial and glaciations occurring. So having these species that you can identify to different periods helps you understand, you know, the kind of like passage of time and the changes in environment, which obviously some zooarchaeologists do. But I feel like it's much more vital for paleontologists
3: to kind of deal with that. If that makes sense. Well, because I guess it's also so far removed that, in a way, like, now I don't mean to say that paleo environmental reconstruction becomes more important, but it's just because we know less of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While, say, like, if you're doing medieval archaeology, yes, paleo environmental reconstructions will be very, very important, but also you do have other means to go by, such as the written record that also inform you of what the environment and the climate would have been like. So I guess it's like, Mm the Pleistocene will be more like of uh, a 500-piece puzzle and you're missing 450.
0: Exactly. <laughs> and obviously, it's, there's much more dramatic changes. And I think it's also, you know, like you were saying, it's a timescale difference where, you know, if you're an archaeologist, you may specifically do the medieval period. And, you know, that's, however, hundreds of years versus paleontologists, which will span, you know, thousands upon thousands or of years.
3: just like millions even
0: yeah i mean like the timescale thing is something i always kind of can't deal with as someone who kind of goes between you know my phd research was the neolithic like the very end of the mesolithic to the late medieval period and my brain still doesn't really comprehend
3: how much time that is like you kind of just flatten it (laughs) because no, it's difficult to imagine, like thinking about it. Of course, you know, yeah. well, we're, we're, we're human, so we're very anthropocentric in the way we look things. But in the grand scheme of things, we're just a blip yep. in the history of the world. They're just like a, a whole history has gone by for millions and millions and millions of years, and then it's just like the last couple. But like, Ooh, okay, Homo sapiens, <laughs> um, and then we wreck everything. Just like, <laughs> yep. you <laughs> are we
0: like, how much damage can we do in the small amount of time we've been here?
3: And boy, did we do it. Just like the guy that shows up late to the party and then just trashes everything. That's us. Yeah.
0: No, yeah. It's, you know, it's a place of honor, truly. And I think the one last thing I want to cover before we take a break is, you know, we are talking about megafauna and there might be some listeners out there who are thinking, you know, what is megafauna anyway? And they're just big animals, folks. I mean, there's a bit more to it. So... Megafauna and extinct species they are extinct species i've I've heard people before kind of talk about them like they're two different things, and maybe that's just me. It literally means big animals, so you know that's kind of. The terminology you use when we were talking about this period of time, because obviously a lot of these animals were much, much bigger until, you know, we came around and decided to uh, mess everything up. It's usually used for terrestrial animals, it seems like. There's a paper, we will put a link to it, or we will cite it in the show notes, but there was a paper that just came out last year that was kind of talking about how it's a weird kind of terminology that's very loose and you know it seems to be mostly used for terrestrial animals no one really seems to use it for you know marine mammals for example and it's the actual definition seems to be very liminal and plays loose with what they actually use for the megafauna so you know it could be it means large animal, but is that mass? Is that length? Does it refer to the largest animal of a species or a largest animal of a specific clade? But for this episode, we are
3: basically just using it to refer to big animals. Wait, I first. think I think I've got it though. What was it? Animals that had big chunky toes. Ugh. You know what? The
0: paper that I read did not have anything okay. about big chunky toes, and honestly, I feel like reviewer number two should have caught that. I should have been asked to review that, and I would have pointed that out, of course, as an expert of big chunky toes. <laughs> <laughs> there's probably, if I like think hard enough about it, there's probably like a nice scientific name I can give myself as an expert. But I haven't
3: eaten dinner yet, so I won't. <laughs> Biggest chunkus toesus. I mean, nah. We'll think about it during the break.
0: Yeah. Quick, go to a break before Tristan can start talking.
5: off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ANIMALS.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
2: And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba da ba ba ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: And we are back with Archeo Animals. And today we are talking about megafauna. And doing a little bit of paleontology. A little bit of zooarchaeology. If you haven't listened to the first segment, first of all, why did you skip to the second segment? But, you know, we already talked about that. Anyway, so we're going to get into a bit of, you know, some examples of kind of megafauna. And I think maybe the most, you know, emblematic of the idea of megafauna might be the mammoth, but also the mastodon.
3: But I feel like some people don't even know our different uh animals yeah don't don't mix them up it's not very nice
0: no to be fair i don't think i realized they were two different animals till like a couple years ago so and also i don't know about you simona but blanket disclaimer at least for me personally i am going to pronounce so many words wrong it's going to be if you are a paleontologist i apologize you might want to turn it off now it may be unlistenable how much I just butcher
3: the pronunciations, but you know. You're just creating a neologism. It's fine. I mean, all mine are going to sound like Roman senators.
0: That is true. I mean, you should probably just have you pronounce all of them, but I will try
3: my best. That's well, so why you pronounce them and they'll just do a, vo- a voiceover over the recording. It's just like, <laughs> like dubbed. <laughs> I will say,
0: actually, just a, a, a quick tangent. I watched a video on YouTube the other night about ancient Chinese recipes for the Lunar new year, which as we're recording this is coming up this week. And they clearly had someone coach them on the Chinese words and names and then just copied and pasted that recording over and over again in the video. It's the, it was so like weird, you know? It was amazing. We should probably do that, maybe. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, no. Anyway, so yeah, mammoths and mastodons, they are two different megafauna. So the mastodon refers to any proboscidean, basically an elephant like creature from the Mammutidae family in this case, not the American metal <laughs> band. I assume you wrote that note because I did <laughs> not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just.
4: I was about to chime in and say Crack the Sky is a great album by Mastodon, but uh, Simona beat me to it. Well done, Simona. I appreciate that.
0: Please, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I know.
4: recognize that. No. I, I saw that. How do I turn well, off your mic? <laughs> right, okay. We'll, we'll go once more around the sun, right? <laughs> but yeah, of
3: course, proboscidian meaning literally like from proboscides, I believe, just yeah. as a trunk yeah
0: so like an elephant type thing basically and a mammoth is any species from the mammothus genus but they're both part of the elephantomorpha group so if anyone out there is building family trees <laughs> while we're doing this episode you know post it to us on twitter we will check your work
3: again literally meaning elephant shaped you know like yeah. the whole like tangent we had in the Easter episode on the lagomorph, which is like hair shaped. Yeah, we're really good with these names, huh? I could have named them. Wow. They look a bit like an elephant. I'll tell you what elephant shaped. Elephantimorph. <laughs> That's the one. I'm a Ugh. genius. That could have been me. <laughs>
0: was born the wrong time. I could have been naming these things. Clearly, it was like a really easy job. (laughs) Anyway, so the main differences are basically quite physical. Mastodons were shorter and stockier with shorter and straighter tusks. And the teeth of a mastodon are a bit more cone-shaped. Like, specifically, the canines were more cone-shaped. And this is because they actually grazed a bit more on wood. And this is in contrast to mammoths who grazed in grasslands and thus had flatter molars. But the two megafauna actually kind of overlapped during the mid Pleistocene. And so the mastodons lived in the warmer periods and the mammoths lived in the colder ones. So there you go, they are actually two different megafauna, even though to be completely honest, they look mostly the same.
3: <laughs> it's like all the paleontology rage. I'm not a paleontologist, you can't get mad at me. You showed her an episode about it. <laughs> it's fine. It's an homage to the paleontologists. But yeah, and speaking of, so I guess well, animals that pop into your sort of your mind straight away when you think of the Pleistocene. Another one is well the saber toothed tiger, which isn't a tiger, and also there is a uh, several species that are usually referred under the catch all term of saber tooth cat. So the saber tooth cats. It's actually what is usually referred to as an extinct tribe of felidae. So, a cat shaped thing. Usually, so like, again, by saber toothed cat, we tend to mean sort of any feline species that has very elongated canines. However, as I mentioned before, like many different species existed and they actually belong to two separate groups. So, you have the tribe of the Homotherini, which is the scimitar toothed cats, and the Smilodontini, which are the dirk toothed cats. Now, the difference, again, is very morphological. So in the omothereen cat, you tend to see sort of shorter, more curved and generally flatter canines compared to the smilodontines or smilodontines. So, of course, the most famous genera in this category is the smilodon, the saber tooth felid, which lived in America. So I think the most famous species are the one that, comes to our minds the most is probably Smilodon fatalis, which I think like some of them were found in some really nice sort of Pleistocene sites in California. While the species that tend to live in Europe were the Omotherium, which were a scimitar-toothed cat. And I I appreciate that probably sounded very, very confusing. But yes, so uh, (laughs) you have uh, the Omotheriums and the Smilodons. Smilodons, mainly in America, saber-toothed. Beelids and Obatherium in Europe with scimitar toothed.
0: I mean, I feel like a lot of my respect for paleontologists, despite the fact that I've been dunking on them a little bit this episode, is that these are just huge words. (laughs) Like, I mean, obviously, as a zooarchaeologist, you usually have to use the scientific names of animals, especially when you're writing up reports and things like that. But these
3: are just, whew, just woof. And then I guess, I like, guess, zooarchology report We most like, Ovi Capra, Ovi Capra, Obi Capra. <laughs> Capra, Small to medium sized mammal. <laughs> Simona, stop reading my reports out loud on the <laughs> podcast. It's embarrassing. But yeah, no, sorry, it's actually just occurred to me that I'm, <laughs> I was saying, like, a, alternating me through the scimitar and dirk-toothed cats, like so many times that I actually, I think I the, <laughs> mixed them up at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll recap once more. So you have the Smilodon, which lived in America, and he was a dirk-toothed cats. So they were a little bit longer and less curved canines. Then in Europe you had mostly homotheriums, or cats of the Amotherini tribe which were scimitar toothed cats where the canines were shorter more curved and generally flatter hey made it oh uh,
0: you can't see it. i'm just shaking my head because it's just so much i don't know how they do it how do you do it paleontologists please tweet at us let us know yeah but like technically we do science and it's not that hard in comparison no, it's hard, actually. It's always hard. Oh, imagine. twice to see fish. <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, nope. they're called fish. They have no other names. No one cares enough to give it to them. If you are a fish paleontologist, do not at me. I do not want to hear it from you.
4: I think it's quite cute that, like, a saber-toothed cat's, like, species name is Smilodon like smile I just think that's just a, like a nice coincidence I know it has no like etymological kind of like standing but I just think it's cute like a smiley don. I just like it yeah
3: because they're called that way because they used to have like that big big grin right before they swallowed you whole
4: <laughs> oh i i thought they were bite and tear predators but yeah simona you're the expert here
3: a <laughs> hundred percent of it happened because with a smile you'd you'd lull the sapiens into a false sense of security and just when they think
1: of course <laughs> when,
3: when, when the danger trust, then bam that's when they strike
4: ah just like modern cats
0: i mean yeah like one of the main kind of st- arcs or themes in this podcast. I can't believe we have themes in this podcast. But one of them I feel like is that the more things change, the more things stay the same, you know. So saber-toothed tigers, regular cats, same
3: thing, basically. I am waiting for this human saber-toothed cat burial where they just go it's it's a person sat down and there's a saber-toothed cat on top of them because they sat there for cuddles and then they (laughs) tell them they couldn't get up
0: (laughs) I mean, it's definitely happened, right? Like,
3: we're just looking for it. Someone find that burial. (laughs) It's out there. It's out there somewhere.
0: Or if you're a time traveler, you know, take one for the team. It would be really funny.
4: (laughs) Yes, I'll go out and find the modern day Smilodon that's, you know, just roaming around the English countryside. I said if you were a time
0: traveler, Tristan, a time traveler.
4: Ah, okay, fine.
0: Anyway, we're going to go from a cute name to a very weird name. So, giant sloughs. First of all, did not realize. Loads of different giant sloughs thought there was just one. So, that's already an, an interesting lesson to learn while doing research for this episode. We're not going to look at all of them, obviously. There's many different species, but I just picked two examples. So, you have the Megatherium Americanum, so I guess a little biased, but it's actually located in South America, and its main claim to fame was that it was one of the last pieces of fossils that were identified from Charles Darwin's fossil collection, which is actually really interesting. And the next one is Megalonyx Jeffersoni which was, uh, you guessed it, originally analyzed and written about by that giant nerd, President Thomas Jefferson. And I guess he got it named after him. I believe he coined the name megalonics because Jefferson was kind of a weirdo in many respects and also a terrible person. But he was very interested in, you know, archaeology and excavations, and he seemed to also have a bit of a interest in fossils, so a general from the army in the late 1700s sent him over a bunch of fossils that they found, I believe, in a cave. And he wrote about how it was the megalonyx, which is, again, another giant sloth. Both of these are from different families, but again, both considered giant sloths. So, you know, who knew? Interestingly, the megatherium, so the South American one, has been kind of the center of controversy. Some people think it was actually a carnivore, but most likely they were
3: both herbivores. So, you know, there's a little drama for you. But what was the basis of them, of people thinking it might have been a carnivore? I think it was
0: mostly because, one, it's a giant thing. So, you know, that's just the thing people think.
3: In the Pleistocene, like, as far as I know, most of the giant things were not carnivores.
0: There, It was the idea that it was eventually near the end of its you know run I guess as a species was trying to supplant their diet with more carnivorous you know approaches to eating and doesn't really seem to be the case but I just thought that was really interesting to bring up it seems like a wild thing to say
3: I mean I guess it's something that might have happened eventually of course I know next to it uh, nothing about the <laughs> ecology of giant sloths, except for the fact that there's very different species and they tend to be confined to the American continent. Mm-hmm. But like, you see that with deer and other herbivores in present day, that they will occasionally like supplement, well, not necessarily on meat, but on bones to get the calcium that they need. So like I guess it wouldn't be completely absurd a theory, but that's just me making suppositions. Because, hey, this is also my podcast, so I shall make suppositions. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe some of that may have happened, but I find I don't know enough about it to comment on whether they did switch to a more carnivorous diet, because it has happened for some Pleistocene species. I think we'll cover that a little bit more in the case studies, where some that mm-hmm. were mainly herbivorous and are uh, present-day mainly herbivorous have actually just gone carnivorous in certain locations. Or, like in the opposite sense, another example, well, in the reverse, being the cave bear, which it turns out was a herbivore. You know. <laughs> you see, like, this big, big, big scary bear. No, no, no hunting. No, just no, not for me. Big bird. Uh, here's a species where her meat eating was definitely for them, <laughs> and that's hyenas, <laughs> which I guess is perhaps another one that is most known when you think well, specifically sort of the. Pleistocene of Europe, so that hyenas do come to mind. Of course, when we speak of hyenas, there's actually three different genera that were present in the European Pleistocene. So you have the genus hyena, which is actually, like it doesn't look very much like what people picture when they think of hyenas. You'll be familiar with the genus hyena when you think of striped hyenas that are present mainly in Asia today, so hyena, hyena. And then you have Mm. Euribos, which is extinct. And the genus Crocuta, which is actually, well, Crocuta Crocuta is the spotted hyena, which is uh, what actually comes to mind when you think of a hyena. So, like, again, like male together with a brown hyena, very prominent in the African continent. So, now, like, the um, genus of Crocusa, Crocuta Crocuta, the spotted hyena, was happily roaming around Europe as well during the Pleistocene, because why not? That would go a bit of a tour. Although, actually, the spotted hyena. Originated from Asia, even though at present day they're confined to the African continent. And interestingly, striped hyenas, which I mentioned before, that mainly live in Asia today, actually originated in Africa. So they, they did themselves a bit of a swap. Back to the spotted hyena that was uh, very prevalent in Europe. They would have looked, I guess, very much like present day spotted hyenas, of course, larger. Than their present day relative, and slightly like shorter and thicker metapodials, but the long bones were longer. And of course, like maybe there probably <clears throat> would have been some differences, which you won't necessarily recover in archaeological record, because I guess the fur would have been a bit thicker. So, sort of like if you're roaming around sort of uh, the UK and it's covered in glaciers. But then, of course, as you do, as you do. well, that, that's a Saturday for me. So I guess unless you find sort of a, a, a specimen preserved in permafrost, well, yeah. Not going to know much about that from the bones alone. Again, like the spotted hyena today, well, the, I guess, cave hyena, which is more of a subspecies, really, because it's crocuta crocuta spelea, spelea, would have had incredibly powerful premolars and elongated carnassials, which pretty much, like, turn into sort of enamel scissors. In, um, <sighs> Very, very, very good for shearing. And we have uh, very good evidence of the species all across Europe. I mean, like, two of the best examples I can think of in the UK are Kirkdale Cave, that's in Yorkshire, and Creswell Crags, sort of in between the um, Nottinghamshire-Derbyshire border, which is also home to the best-preserved cave hyena cup in Europe, affectionately known as Eric. And I've seen Aww. him, and he's the cutest thing.
1: Oh.
0: And I think we'll, we'll kind of touch upon that in the next segment when we do our case studies. Why not? Yeah. So let's take a break and we will be back with case studies.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
2: And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
1: Ba da ba ba ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
2: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-pa-ba-ba.
0: And we are back with everyone's favorite segment, the case studies. That was an air horn. I've been told I do a really good air horn impression. So you're welcome. Use that as your ringtone. (laughs) But yeah, since we were just talking about Creswell Crags, I might as well start off with that as a case study. More specifically, the Robin Hood's Cave, which actually, I didn't look it up, but I don't know if you know, Simona, why it's actually called the Robin Hood's Cave?
3: It's more of a myth than anything, because Creswell Crags being on the Derbyshire-Nottinghamshire border, it rumoured that Robin Hood himself has taken shelter in this cave
0: mm. I'm always very interested in like cave names maybe it's something that's very specific to Britain just because a lot of the cave names tend to be something that's based on folklore for instance the sorry this is a bit of a tangent one of the caves that I worked on is called Laird Stables on the myth well not really myth more like the, the local legend that it was used as a stable for horses during the jo- Kobanite uprisings, and we only found one
3: bit of horse the entire time we've excavated it, so I don't know how true that is. <laughs> I mean, chances are it, it might have happened. I mean, going on a bit more of a tangent, the village that I'm originally from is known because it's an old medieval burg and has mm-hmm. caves like directly underneath it. And they were extensively used, I guess, uh, archaeologically, especially sort of when the Arabs invaded and they were sieging the village. They were actually sheltering within the caves
2: Mm
3: -hmm. until the village eventually fell. But going fast forward a thousand years or so, they were actually being used to keep livestock up until the 1960s. So if you go visit them now, there's a lot of bits and bobs or like very, very post-medieval stuff because they just repurpose them to keep livestock. Huh.
1: That's All interesting.
3: I believe like pigs specifically.
0: Not I will sure. say though, uh, these caves were so small and tight to get into. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. I guess we, we were just pretty happy to find one horse bone in that entire cave. But anyway, Robin Hood's cave. So as we basically just explained in this opening part of the segment, it's part of the Creswell Craigs cave complex on the Derbyshire, uh, not on I'm sure, border. And it's most famous for the Robin Hood cave horse, which was a partial rib engraved with a horse figure dating back to the Upper Paleolithic. So most likely first occupied by Neanderthals 40,000 years ago, followed by Homo sapiens around 20,000 years ago BP. And it seems to also have had occasional occupation by hyenas, one of the kind of interpretations I read about it basically said that a lot of the older faunal remains were likely brought in by hyenas as scavengers. So you, you got a lot of gnawed bone there, which is very interesting. And it's, I also am very interested in those kind of life history of caves, because obviously you don't have one person, one group of people usually living in a cave for an extended period of time. You have people leave, come back. And other species like hyenas come in. And aside from that cave horse, it also had a wealth of lithics and butchered animal remains. One of which I'm actually interested in, of course. And the other I could care less about. Uh, You can guess which is which, if you would like. And, of course, you know me. I love love drama. Love controversy. Not lithics. Not lithics. So... I of course found the one controversy in this cave. So there was a saber-toothed canine that was found here in 1875 by Professor William Boyd Dawkins. And apparently was completely mired in controversy because many people thought that Dawkins, who was a huge paleontologist, planted the tooth. And first of all, I love that. That's great. That's amazing.
3: But also, Mm -hmm. was it it a scimitar-toothed cat or a dark-toothed cat?
0: (laughs) I mean, was it even a saber-toothed canine? Because if we're following this logic, who knows at this point. But another thing I want to point out is, like you said before, this was Victorian-error excavations. So they were just blowing it up with dynamite. So I don't know why (laughs) the the main controversy was some guy might have planted a tooth when they were blowing up fauna remains left and right, probably. I don't want to think about that. I do love that, though. I mean, just, you know, just just come in with, like, a saber tooth from your personal fossil collection, because, of course, he would have probably had one, and just, like, slipped it in the, like, the soil heave. (laughs) Smooth move. Oh. Listen, I we have to bring the drama. I've realized looking back, we haven't had much drama on this podcast, other than me dunking on Tristan, and then that's not really drama. That's just you know, correct. And <laughs> and so I love that every so often, if I can find some drama, I want to bring it up because that's incredible and hilarious. And apparently, like this Professor Dawkins was just kind of followed by this controversy
3: until he died. So. <laughs> So oh, is there any drama that you'd like us to bring up in a future episode? Please, Let uh, us know. Yeah. Asha <laughs> from Twitter with hashtag drama or archaeodrama.
0: Oh yes, archaeodrama. I mean let's be real, there's always archaeodrama. But we mean like this kind of archaeodrama. I want to hear about the archaeologist that slips an entire like replica of beaker pottery into a spoil heap and goes, Oh, look what I found here. <laughs> We love to see it. I mean, we don't love to see it, but on a, a level of, you know, just being entertained, we love to see it. Or like, anyway, uh, this, so this like, went off on a tangent.
3: I'm sorry, I'm picturing a replica Beaker, like in Viking Coppergate. <laughs> <laughs> inside is a saber-toothed cat tooth, but like, not like, a, you know, a Smilodon, the American one. <laughs> in a beaker at Viking Coppergate below the ports.
0: yeah just that's so interesting like even back then people you know just having that be prevalent is fascinating and I think a lot of the times I don't know about you but I always forget about the the actual intricacies of excavation you know like oh there was people excavated this kind of stuff and you know they Definitely had drama.
3: Yeah, no, like I, I will say, fortunately, that like, yeah, I've I've not experienced any similar dramas. So
0: yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. So we live vicariously through the uh, the late eighteen hundreds, truly.
3: But yeah, and for the other case study, I thought I'd do something. Well, we'll do something you know a little different that probably I thought that maybe a few people would not have heard about. And it might get a little confusing. Hopefully it won't. I mean, I've proven time and time again to be incredibly good at confusing myself, so we'll give this a shot.
0: You did a lot of confusing yourself this episode, to be honest. But also, I was confused too. Ar- confusion. Hashtag Archeodrama,
3: hashtag confusion. Is it confusion of the drama or a drama because you're confused? But anyway, Pleistocene Fauna of Sicily is what I'll be covering in this case study. 'Cause I thought like uh, we'd do you know, a case study to well somewhere that is in Britain, which is <laughs> rare To <laughs> be very Britain centric. The and of course being incredibly biased I did choose my homeland, but also because in a way the, the Pleistocene fauna of Sicily is incredibly interesting as in it represents an insular type of fauna. For those who have not heard of it, there's a rule called the island rule that's been developed by Foster in the 60s, according to which insular mammalian populations tend to differ in size from their mainland counterpart. So usually you see megafauna becoming considerably smaller, also known as insular dwarfism, and small mammals that instead become considerably larger, also known as insular gigantism. Allegedly, this is all driven by a reduction of resource intake for larger mammals, which leads to a decrease in size, and smaller mammals actually thriving on the absence of large predators or making the most of the resources they have available to them, meaning that they progressively get larger. Of course, there are exceptions, and uh, this rule isn't strictly limited to islands, as we do see sort of fairly similar processes occurring in caves or just generally isolated areas, like very isolated mountains or even some sort of valleys. Now, the chief example of insular dwarfism in Sicily is represented by Palaeoloxodon Falconeri, to friends known as the pygmy elephant, but technically the Maltese pygmy elephant, also known as the Sicilian dwarf elephant. <laughs> as you may suspect, it's a very small elephant. Who knew? <laughs> you know what I thought? which likely derives from the straight tusk elephant, except that in its insular form, The shoulder height of an adult male was just shy of a metre. So basically, a large dog. So picture a world where elephants are the size of dogs. So yeah, this species, a good old friend, Paleoloxodon falconeri, also a Roman senator. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is absolutely a senator name, come on. I mean, they're likely to have reached Malta and then subsequently Sicily via North Africa. As you find, it, it's usually the case, or so one of the main cases of uh, the fauna of Sicily, even later on. You do tend to have a lot of, sort of North African species making their way up, as well as from the mainland, to be fair. So it's just one of the two main ways again, that, as you'd expect, animals will be crossing into Sicily, mainland and North Africa, both very, very close. So no surprise there. But one thing that I thought was interesting, going back sort of slightly onto a more like folklore and mythology route, the recovery of dwarf elephant skulls in antiquity may have contributed to the belief in existence of the Cyclops described in classical literature.
0: Yeah, I mean, the first time I was told that, if you look, like, if you've never heard that, go look up even just a regular elephant skull. I mean, I believe it.
3: Elephant skulls are weird. Yeah, because of of the hole where the nasal cavity is, and because of the size of it, I mean, to the uninitiated, you just found that in the ground or in a cave where you've taken shelter. uh, That is going to look like a giant eye socket.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if I didn't know what an elephant looked like, I'd probably say that.
3: And also to look at sort of the other side of the scale and looking at insular gigantism, a very good example for Sicily is none other than the giant dormouse, which was actually the size of a cat. That is amazing. So
0: that
4: certainly is a, an unusual size.
3: Yeah, it looks like actually. To, to be specific, uh, so it's um, the giant dormouse was the size of a cat, and their head alone was the size of a full dormouse. Just, just, just to put it into perspective, some more. Just, uh, I yeah. think
0: I need someone to do fan art of that. <laughs>
3: just with the little scales and then just like a giant dorm house and then a little dorm house drawn on top of the head like in five places the adventures of a dorm house and giant dorm house
4: (laughs) could you imagine the size of the hole that like it like digs through the side of your skirting board honestly
3: (laughs) (laughs) you hear the scratching oh it's trying to get in it's really trying to get in is
5: it
0: scratching or more of, like, you know, a, a giant, you know, banging?
4: Do we have a, like, do we have a hole from, from the kitchen to the living room yesterday? No, we do
1: not.
3: <laughs> <laughs> might as well put in a cat flap. But yesterday, yeah, picture a world where elephants are the size of dogs and dormice are the size of cats. Welcome to Place the Scene Sicily, everyone. <laughs> Although the giant dorm house, you know, it wasn't just endemic to Sicily. And this is particularly fascinating in its own right, because the species is found across the Balearic Islands, as well as the mainland of Spain. But in each of these locations, the species underwent a slightly different evolutionary path that led to different sizes that, of course, you know, derived from the, the environment that they were in, but also different diet with some becoming more carnivorous and some becoming more herbivorous so um, the dormouse that was found in sicily was primarily herbivorous but actually i think i believe the giant dormouse that was found in the balearic islands was more carnivorous and if i remember uh-huh. correctly even to present day where the dormice are still about much smaller of course but still bigger slightly bigger than your average dormouse I think they do tend to be slightly more carnivorous over there still. Ah,
0: huh, okay. So can't really dunk on the, the carnivorous giant
3: sloth thing that hard. Well, that's exactly so sort of the example I was referring to in the second segment, because it all comes down to the fact that, well, these animals were filling an available ecological niche.
2: So hmm, yeah. in
3: the Balearic Islands, there would have been, you know, more meat eat you know through speciation you will slowly you know go towards that mm, yeah but in a way like you know polar bears are, are pretty like obligate carnivals so they've gone they've gone from the bear that is like purely like an omnivorous animal to becoming like an obligate carnival because of course in the region that they live in that they've adapted to well you're not going to find an awful lot of vegetation are you that is true <laughs> And again, interestingly enough, picture this world some more. Yeah, giant mice dorm ha- the size of cats. Elephants the size of dogs. There was also a giant barn owl. Mmm, no.
0: <laughs> no.
4: Are we adding owls to the list of animals that Alex doesn't like?
0: No, I like owls. The idea of a giant barn owl frightens me.
4: Okay, okay. Fans of owls, you can put your torch and pitchforks down. You don't need to join the fish people.
3: No, fish people, you're still on notice. I love owls and I love barn owls.
4: I've got a question somewhere. How can you, when, when did this barn owl live? Were there actually barns when this barn owl was <laughs> around? <arrived?
5: laughs>
4: because I thought we're talking about like <laughs> the Pleistocene, unless there's like the barn builders of the Pleistocene in Sicily or wow. whatever.
3: Let's check out the atheists. It's just called a cave. Duh.
4: So is it not just a cave oil? <laughs> like why are you a barn oil? <laughs> this is why I can't trust paleo-people. Well,
3: because I guess probably like the, the naming of the barn owl with its current common name probably predates the discovery of a Pleistocene barn owl. Duh. Oh. <laughs>
4: I still think you can't have a barn aisle without barns. I'm just saying.
3: Well, maybe there were barns. Maybe actually dormice were very skilled barn builders. What do you know? If, if they can tunnel through your kitchen, they can build a barn, all right?
0: And I think that's a great place to end this episode.
4: <laughs> just, yeah. I haven't heard anything about the barn aisles though. <laughs>
3: oh, yeah. also. Okay, what, what about the barn owls, Simona? Definitely it was more something interesting, because you get giant dormice, you know, that got a lot bigger, and barn owls also got a lot bigger. So I do wonder, like, is that something that's completely unrelated, or did the barn owls grow larger along with the dormice so they could still hunt them?
0: So does that mean the barn got bigger too?
3: Oh, yeah. Because you just big barn, cover the entire island. Yeah,
0: like, is, the, is it giant barn owl, is it because the owl's big, or is it because the barn is big?
3: I, I'm going to take an educated guess and say <laughs> the owl was big. But do we know that? Ask a paleontologist. Uh, okay, that's a
0: good place to end this episode. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, we should probably just ask a
3: paleontologist. Don't look at us. Just ask a paleontologist. <laughs>
0: Anyway, you know you can find us on Twitter at ArchaeoAnimals. If you like this episode and want to request your own, please feel free. If you want to, you know, if you're a paleontologist who hated this episode completely, please email Tristan <laughs> and like and subscribe to our podcast. We are basically wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to us at network.com slash animals, and we'll see you next episode bye
3: bye thank you for listening to Archeo Animals please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from you can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals also the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves the hosts and guests and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers and the archeology podcast network thanks for listening
5: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden.
0: This has been a presentation
3: of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archepodnet.com. Contact
0: us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
5: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnetcom slash members for more.
4: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.